My name is Susie Can, and I hope you enjoy exploring with me the thoughts that come with this thread. If you have any interest in supporting what I'm doing or getting in touch, please do so through the website kylak.ie, where you will also find other resources and connections that I create around each podcast so that if some of the tweaks of interest come to you through them, you have a place to go to go a little further and deeper or to find other information or to find a way to support by maybe wanting to collaborate or offer something or even a donation. Thanks for listening. Having explained in the last episode the context I was living in, the experiences I was having as I made the bridging time between leaving school and starting on the adventures of a more independent life, visiting Africa, starting off at college with very little money and living with different people and experiencing a different Ireland. I'm going to continue now on my exploration of my own narrative and my identity formation as I spend time in art college in Limerick for a couple of years. And then I'm going to talk a little bit about a break that I took mid that time and went to America that I had intended to go when I had had the opportunity instead to go to Nigeria. And then I'm going to come back and finish out my time in college in this episode. So one of the things that I was getting to experience is, of course, my chosen career path in college, although I think very early on we were fairly aware that very few people actually made a career fully out of art. We got to meet a few different artists that would come and visit us in college, but we certainly got the impression that it wasn't easy uh, to make your way as a visual artist in Ireland. But nonetheless, I was at least beginning to learn what was on offer to be taught about art. And the first year in art college was called foundation year. And the idea was that we would be exposed to lots of different approaches and methodologies and particular art forms, and that only after foundation would we choose and go towards a specialty. We did this in a big, old, former school in Limerick City up on the main street. It was a red brick building. It had many flights of stairs and it had big open classroom type spaces that had been turned into studios with large windows. And they were all full of different practices and different spaces in which we could do things. That included having a small little bit of space for ourselves as a sort of studio dark rooms and craft materials and paints and found 
objects, all sorts of, of things that make up what artist studios often look like. And we also then were exposed to the different type of teachers. And I think from very early on, I struggled with this because in some instances we were being taught how to do something. I particularly enjoyed learning photography and doing a lot of, this is pre-digital photography, so a lot of all of the mechanisms of having a camera, I was able to get a second-hand camera and have film and go out and shoot black and white photography and then use a dark room. And I remember that feeling of being completely in the dark and putting your hands inside of a, a bag to take the film out of its canister. And it, it was sort of unlocking a mystery of something that had previously seemed very far away from my understanding and getting the film and then putting it in to the developing liquids and then getting to go on into the room with where we had the different trays of developer and having that little red light overhead. And it was sort of a chemical smelling space. We had a, a photography technician who I became very friendly with who would help us figure out what we were doing. I have somewhere images that I took as self-portraits and I can see myself as this quite short-haired, very young looking to me now, of course, young person who didn't look enormously happy, I have to say. That same insecurity, I think, was around me in my social sense. And I was still figuring things out about making friends and people around me being very interesting. But also, like I said, with the teachers, the different teachers that I had, I didn't get along with quite a lot of the painter teachers I wanted to learn. I thought I was coming to art college actually to paint. That's what I had been doing the most of before I came to art college, but I just found the personalities of some of the male teachers really hard to relate to as a young woman. They were abrupt. They were the criticism that is part of the, a particular style of teaching art where the critique I couldn't distinguish between something that was being helpful and something that was just sounding incredibly negative and critical and how I, I was supposed to translate that advice into any improvements in my art it was very different than the time I'd spent with the artist who'd inspired me a lot before I went to art college who was a practicing artist and much more encouraging, pointing out where I was getting things right and and kind of helping me develop my own style or my own understanding and much more technically focused. Whereas this was, I don't know, it was emotionally bombarding to have the kind of commentary that most of those tutors gave me at that time. We did get to spend time on rotations in several other departments. I spent time in a different building much cleaner and clearer in its layout that had the graphics department. And again, in those days, it was pre-digital graphics. So we were 
spending a very long time learning how to by hand render and draw exact circles and color something in with uniform color all the way through at a level of exactitude. And I found that was very early on. I knew I wasn't enjoying that. It wasn't likely to be a graphic designer. I I didn't like all that kind of foundational stuff that I was going to need to know if I wanted to be a graphic designer. But I did enjoy the print shop very much where we did lithographs and screen printing and other forms of, of printing. I really enjoyed making prints and the tutors there that I think that was a older German man, maybe Dietrich or Dieter. And he was much more easy to be around than I found the other tutors. And the other one then that I did a rotation in was ceramics. Again, something that I really enjoyed. I really loved working with clay. And that is something that has continued through my life into cob building and working with clay in other ways. And I liked some of the friends of mine that were doing their same block in in the ceramics department and just learning some of the real foundational things there was much less tedious than I found in the graphics foundational things where you were already very hands-on learning how to make a clay slip, how to stick clay to clay, how to get bubbles out of a clay by dropping it and banging it and kneading it, and then some of the other kinds of construction and then a little bit of turning uh, on a potter's wheel. But one of the things that I look back at my notions that you have when you're 18, 19, was that I thought I'd gone to art college to become an artist, a fine artist under the fine arts department. And while we did that rotation in the ceramics department, we also did one in fashion. I Those for me were, fashion was interesting and it had some excitement to it. It was very commercially oriented to make people into viable fashion designers at Limerick fashion department had a very good reputation of doing that and it was a fun setting I think it was the most queer department in the whole college and it was where I got probably my first exposure directly to members of the queer community both a lot of the men in fashion who were choosing to do fashion were gay and that was really unusual because Outside of that, there were very few openly gay people in Ireland at the time and certainly not previously in my life. So that was a really exciting and interesting phenomenon for me to begin to realize that I knew that gay people existed, but to be able to make friends and hang out. and So the fashion department was fun, but I think that I struggled with the fine motor control that's required for sewing and pattern creation and and all of that. I I found that I was too messy or something. I found it really hard to create. I, I could make things if you stuck them together with glue, but the idea of being able to assemble and to work out measurements and so on, I found that very frustrating, that part of my 
brain wasn't really very good. I didn't consider fashion, but the reason I didn't consider ceramics, even though I really loved it, was pure pretension. I looked down more on craft because I was going to be an artist. And somehow that was in the atmosphere that was probably very clearly in some of the teachers. And it was definitely in the students that there was a snobbery about being in the fine arts department rather than in the very commercial graphics design department or the craft oriented, although it's, you know, not even that craft-oriented ceramics. People were making sculptural-based ceramics that were amazing. And I, I, I was in huge admiration of the fourth years that I could see the things they were making. And so what I d- did do was spend a lot of time in another three-dimensional department, which was the sculpture department. And I really liked the men again, mostly male tutors across the whole college in every department, but the men in the sculpture department were something that I think I, and the technicians as well that supported us and helped us learn things, I think that that's something that I see in my friendships and my connection to natural builders since, because I liked something of their personalities that were very practical and I was learning how to use machine wood shop, so how to use a circular table saw and a band saw and a belt sander, or I was learning how to use a welder, MIG welder, and with metalwork, or I was experimenting with other kinds of mixed materials and some amount of stone, but which I had imagined I was going to use a lot. I thought I was going to learn how to carve stone in sculpture in in art college. And I was kind of disappointed to know that they didn't do a lot of that in Limerick. I discovered later they did do more of it in Cork. I hadn't chosen to, I don't know if I didn't get into Cork or hadn't chosen to go there anyway. And so these were this exposure that we got to all of the arts woven through that. We were supposed to be keeping sketchbooks and no idea books and notebooks. And I think I still had some unfortunate layovers from homework from school, which I'd hated and hated study and wasn't good at. And so I wasn't great at keeping too many sketchbooks. And I didn't really understand the joy of an ideas book until much, much later in my artistic process development but I did enjoy all the experimentation and strange things that I made in that year. When it came time at the end of foundation to choose a specialization in second year, I chose sculpture. And I think that there were two other influences in that. And one was visiting tutor called Simon, who came with us when we went on a foundation field trip the entire class of foundation, I think there might have been 90 of us or something like that, went down and stayed in some holiday cottages beside a small hotel in Kerry. I think Dunanor is what it was called. And we were under, this was a lot of this was being guided 
by this visiting Tudor Simon, and I think there were other Tudors had come along, but a lot was with him. He was sending us out into nature to interact with it through our sketchbooks, but also through absorbing it, playing in it. I mean, we were also being crazy and partying all night and messing and carrying on. But I think the idea of that little, little seed of bringing art back outside and being in nature with our experiences. And I remember sitting on a beach, drawing rocks and taking lots of photographs and also seeing what other people were doing and how they were interacting out. That was quite formative, I think, and he was a sculptor, and so I think that influenced me. I also, one of the artists that I'd known from back home, there were two that lived near my parents that I had taken classes with one, but I had babysat for the other, and he was a sculptor, later fine woodworker, and I really liked some of the things, and particularly his drawings, actually, that were on the walls of his home whenever I'd be staying there in the evenings and conversations that I had. So I think I was liking the people primarily that I was meeting in the sculpture world. And then one other artist who was the, to, to really influence me, was Dorothy Cross, who came to visit the college periodically as a visiting lecturer. And so there she was as the only woman tutor that I was exposed to. And the conversations about her art process and some of the work that she did that was mixed media and the ideas that she was exploring. And I really enjoyed those conversations. They opened something up and she also had a real feel for nature in her work and but also, you know, underneath women's issues and so on. And that probably, I met her several times throughout the years in art college, and that maybe came later for me, those other elements to the narrative. So yeah, so in second year, I chose to go into fine art sculpture, and I started to deepen my knowledge of what I could do. Three of the women, young women that I got friendly with were from the Limerick area and outside the Limerick area in the west of Ireland. And these were very different friends that I was making that I had had opportunity to make friends with in Dublin. These were people from a different part of Ireland. And I think even though I had moved south from I was 12 and I'd had those years of changing my worldview from what I understood about Ireland and its identity, I think the, these women in particular, young women, really introduced me to another Ireland, a west of Ireland, Ireland, a city working class, but Limerick, a much smaller city, a much tougher city in some ways. It was called back then, and people don't like this memory of it, but it was called Stab City because there was a huge amount of violence on the streets at night and We'd go to the pub and I'd listen to the stories that, of things that were going on. And by then I was living in another accommodation and we had all sorts of stuff that would go on around us and things on the streets that I could hear. 
at night. And it was a kind of, I was, I didn't see it as scary, um, but it was a pretty wild city to live in. And I think that the friends that I made who were from working class parts of Limerick, who had grown up around all sorts of toughness, they helped to not make me afraid, actually. And and I would go anywhere with them, and I was pretty fearless at this age anyway. And they told me amazing stories, and I remember meeting their mothers and staying and visiting people's houses. And they were exposing me to, yeah, a different, a different Ireland altogether. And they gave me a lot of slagging and teasing because I was a Protestant from Northern Ireland, and they put, you know, they'd have these West of Ireland accents and call me a dirty black Protestant. And I didn't have a clue really what I was being teased about exactly. And I didn't understand this different Ireland really, but it was, it was something that had a richness to it, had stories, had song, had trad sessions and, and mad stories. I remember us in stitches with a couple of the stories being told by some of my friends about a woman on their street who talking about sex said, I hate it. My sister hates it. We all hate it in our family. And another woman who had been a neighbor to this woman who had had 25 children. And I remember thinking, well, no wonder she hates sex if every time she has sex, it results in another child. And and there was another trip we took in the first couple of years of art college was down to, not very far away, to Fenor. And we camped in a campsite. I think there were some caravans. And we, again, drew and explored and partied in the pub. But the thing that I remember standing out about Fenor was the local people, the West of Ireland people, the session in the pub, we all went up and just as young people got to join in, this was a smaller trip with a smaller group of people and friends. And we had something that is kind of the quintessential tourism Ireland package now in the year 2021. This is what's the the idea of Ireland is the small pub, the session, the, the family atmosphere. But I suppose that's been very packaged and corporatized in, in many ways. Whereas when I was back in the 1980s, it was a very real experience of country life of rural Ireland that on the Saturday night, we all traipsed up to a big hotel with a lounge in it. We all traipsed up to a pub with a bar and lounge and the entire community was there of all ages. There were old people, but there were younger people, kids running about getting packets of crisps. And then there was session music and dance and traditional dancing and, and just this whole late night party thing. And that the kids were there until very late, falling asleep across their parents' knees and only leaving at 10, 30, 11, and then the party continuing. And it was just this whole cultural life of the pub that I hadn't experienced in South Dublin. And I really got to seek out both in the city and Limerick and then on other smaller trips that I would take 
with my friends. There was one that we particularly liked to go out to that I don't think I could find again now if I tried. It was somewhere outside of Limerick that we'd hitched to. And there was a old church that was falling down and I used to bring my sketchbook and camera and take photographs and, and make sketches for a few hours. And then we'd walk up the road to this little pub that was barely two-story building, like just one long building, like a cottage. You'd go in and there was a little counter that looked more like a shop than a pub. And in there you could get a sliced pan and crisps and maybe a bar of something. And a few other groceries were for sale. But then between all those bits of groceries, there were pint pulling taps. And this was also a pub. And then if you took a pint of something, you stepped on through into the one and only room in the other part of the cottage, which was had big trestle tables and the old-fashioned totally open fire with a black kettle sitting over a turf fire on irons that swung out over the fire and hanging in the ceiling on hooks there were bacon or huge like pieces, carcasses of pig hung up to smoke above the fire and one ladder of steps going up to a small upstairs. And so this was the pub sort of and we would all hang out there. But if you were still there at six o'clock you'd be kicked out for a couple of hours because this is also where the family that owned the pub lived. And this was actually their sitting room. And so you'd get kicked out while they had their tea. And then you could come back in again a couple of hours later as the pub kind of opened again for its evening session. And I remember getting a hot whiskey, getting cold outside, and the woman of the house swinging the back kettle over the fire and boiling a kettle for my hot whiskey. And then you'd get kicked out again at the end of the night. There might have been music there or chat and different people coming through, a lot of older people in the countryside. And when they closed, when it was closing time, you'd you'd get kicked out again because they all wanted to go up the stairs to bed, the family. So I had these newer experiences through those first couple of years of art college, but I was also struggling to make ends meet. I had not had a grant in the second year as I'd had in the first year. So I was working in various places and one of them was my accommodation for a while. I I worked in a secondary school and I used to get up in the morning to put on all of the boarders hot water for their breakfast. And I made friends with the women of the kitchen who made the boarders breakfast and they lived very distinct working class part of Limerick called the island and these women used to look after me and take me out for um sometimes for for Sunday lunch and I got put in the good room and fed my dinner and given jelly and ice cream for dessert and stuff and they'd talk to me about going to Lourdes and again a lot of Catholicism that I had not previously been exposed to, the whole traditional elements of faith in in a cure and faith in various things that 
I, I didn't really know anything about before them. But while I was having all of these wild times and different kinds of experiences, I was also running out of money very quickly, even though I was working in, in different places. I didn't, I, I found it difficult to make ends meet. And so I managed somehow, I think you were being offered this as a student, I was offered a overdraft facility in my bank to help out with college expenses. And so I managed to end up being a thousand pounds or punts in debt after the second year of college. And so I didn't want to keep doing that. And I didn't think I could keep doing that. There were limits to what I could borrow. So I decided I would go to America like I had planned to do when I was in my end of secondary school thinking. I found out about this program called Au Pair in America, where you could earn money, where you could get a visa to go and be an au pair. I had actually gone through some process before of trying to get a visa to go to America that was all very convoluted, but you weren't supposed to work on a holiday visa. And I think I'd been turned down or something. But then I found out about Au Pair in America, which was just starting in Ireland. And I have a feeling I had to go to London for an interview for it. It had an office in London. I think I went and traveled by boat and train and maybe stayed with some of my relatives and went to an interview. I actually think I might have stayed with one of my mother's friends in London. And I also, yeah, I'm not sure, but I think that was another trip that happened around that time was an art college trip where we stayed in London. And, and then I think I stayed on for a while and stayed in a squat in Stoke Newington. But that could have been in later parts of art college. It was always hard to tell what happened in what year. I found out anyway about Au Pair in America and decided that I would go because I could earn money in America and I could save up and pay off my debts and then continue on in college. And I remember people saying, but what if you don't finish college? And I said, well, if I don't finish college, I'll have thought of something else to do better. So I'd just go and find out what happens. I got a couple of different offers from different families. I remember one was in Connecticut and the woman had three children that were girls like my family. And I think that the middle one was called Suzanne and she was, they were Catholic Irish from Connecticut. And I thought that that was one interesting possibility. And then the other one that got in touch was another similar coincidence that the mother's name was Susan and she was the middle of three girls, but they were Jewish. And there was a kind of interesting thread of connection to that because my mother had been a nanny for Jewish families in London when she was a young woman. And so something about that called to me and I remember making that arrangement, making that decision. And one of my aunts was visiting from Northern Ireland just before I was going. And I remember coming in and saying, no, I've spoken to the mum and told her that I'm going, I'm going to go with the Jewish family in Vermont. And, and my mum saying, oh, maybe she'll meet a nice Jewish boy and not come home. And my aunt saying, well, better a Jew than a Catholic. And I realizing that how much we had changed living in the South, how that thought 
was a shock to not only to me, but to my mother. I want to say that what's interesting, looking at that now, that was 1980s, that it would be a shock actually to those ants now because of all the life and changes that have happened in between. But that was still the Ireland and definitely the Northern Ireland that they were living in. So I got myself organized and, and booked my flights and off I went. And we spent the first four days doing an orientation in New York City, staying in a hotel and being told about the American culture and being told things that we might have believed about from movies, like what the, I remember the learning, what was the proportion of black people in America and people from Europe guessing, because we were au pairs from all over Europe, based on what we knew from the movies and then discovering that actually America was a very white place and that there were much smaller numbers of black people than we had supposed and different things like this that they tried to teach us about American culture and differences. And I don't remember much else that they taught us for those four days. I do remember that I was experiencing New York as pretty wildly shocking. And it was strange because I had been to Lagos, which was this city of 8 million people bustling with all sorts of difference and culture. And I had eaten on street food, being told not to do that in Africa, but I had done that and I'd gotten uh, food poisoning and been really sick. But for some reason in New York, I was much more terrified of the dirt in the city and the dirty food as I perceived it on the streets beside all the traffic, just seeing the policemen carrying guns. And I grew up in Northern Ireland where you walked around seeing policemen carrying machine guns. But I think it had sunk in all the movies, all the cops and robber shows that we had watched growing up because we watched a lot of the Starsky and Hutch sort of stuff and the all of that. And I, I, was, I was afraid in New York of crime. And it took me halfway through that year, I, I later went back down and visited New York with some of the au pairs. And I then got to actually have a completely different experience in New York and visit Greenwich Village and all the other places and, and hang out and go to stuff and, and was not afraid. But that first four days was actually really nervous making and listening to all the sirens of car cop cars and ambulances and fire trucks at night. It was pretty intimidating. But then we went up to the family and we'll whoever we'd met, we set off from. And the area that I was in with the family, there was a, a number of other au pairs going to the same area. And the scheme gave us a community counsellor for the au pairs. So there was this lovely woman who was actually from Germany and married to an American man. And so she knew a lot and understood a lot about European young women coming in being in, in America and the cultural differences we would experience. And so she was there to help us with any issues with our family and to gather us together to help us get to know each other and go on outings occasionally and so on. And so we had au pairs from all over. And so not only was I getting to experience American culture and get to know the family that I was staying with and the area I was living in, 
which was a very affluent area, really, in the countryside. But I was also meeting Norwegian and Swedish and German and then also some another Northern Irish girl and a Welsh girl and an English girl. And so we had ready-made network of friends to go and do things with. The family that I was living and working for were family with four children and the dad of the family was MD working in emergency medicine and they'd got no pair because the mum of the family had just taken on a principalship of high school having been a middle school principal, I think. And they were a really bubbly, busy, very busy, active kids, active family. And so I was thrown right in to look after the kids, to drive them to places. I remember their sports in the winter were ice hockey and in the summer there was soccer and all of this. And then coming, they were all in primary school. So I would meet them off the school buses or drop them to places or the mum and the family would drop them to school and I might pick them up. And then I would be off maybe babysitting a couple of evenings a week and then I'd be off most of the weekends where I could go and meet up with the other au pairs and we could find out about the nightlife and the social life, which was initially mostly around the college in the next town over, which was Dartmouth College. And we discovered the lads from there that we could socialize with in the college spaces that we could interact in and the different bars and nightclubs. And we were all really shocked to discover that in New Hampshire, the drinking age was 21 because for all Europeans, the drinking age was 18. But luckily for us in Vermont, the drinking age was still 18. So we would do a lot of our drinking and partying in Vermont and then drive across the Connecticut River to New Hampshire and go to the bigger venues for dancing and so on. And we also discovered fraternities. And I remember going to some fraternity parties at Dartmouth, but also being taken by one of the, I think, I think it was one of the families had a second family and there were older kids in the family that were away at college. So one of them organized for us to go and spend a weekend at a different campus in New Hampshire and getting into bother with communication because I did the classic thing of talking about language that um, Americans don't use. So the lads that we just met sitting in their house saying we're going to go out and have an evening out with fraternities and stuff and them saying okay what do you want to do tonight you girls and I saying I don't care what we do as long as we get some good crack and they thinking that it was crack cocaine that had just hit the drug scene in, in America and they were completely shocked and freaking out before they realized or before I realized by their faces what they thought I meant and I had, no, 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 it's a word for fun in Ireland. I just mean want to go out and have some fun. And they're like, oh, okay, sure. And the other thing that I remember from that particular, because that campus was near a beach and Vermont was landlocked, so we was great to get to New Hampshire coast. But I remember us wanting to go and swim and the, the European girls from mainland Europe wanted to 
sunbathe on the beach topless and they learned from the American girls and the American guys that that wasn't allowed and that we were really shocked by that because our image of America from the movies had always been, especially from Ireland, that it was so much more sexually free and that people didn't talk about sex before marriage as a sin and all of this kind of thing. So to discover that the kinds of clothing that the European girls wore, especially, but myself as well, but the idea that you that they would be conservative about the idea of sunbathing topless and much, much more prudish. A lot of the young women we met were much more prudish about their clothing and we were much more flamboyant, I guess, and open about what we wore in much more revealing ways. And, and that was really, really surprising to me to discover. And also just kind of the social divides that we realized were more rigid because for all that Ireland is now much more divided in terms of the silos where people live and mix. But even today, we are a more mixed culture in terms of socioeconomic exchanges. Um, and of course, today we're more multicultural, which was true only in, in fairly recent years, wasn't true in 1980s Ireland anyway. But what we, what I found surprising was that we were meeting these college kids from both colleges that we visited and hung out with those young people, middle class, well-to-do. I, I didn't understand, like I didn't discuss before that in Ireland, I never thought about class at all. I'm referring to meeting people who using a language of disadvantaged neighborhoods or socioeconomic deprived or working class, but actually the experience of Ireland because of its history and, and how it was colonially, there isn't the same sense of class as there is in England because of the royal lines and the lords and the lineages and so on. There, there's It's a more less class-delineated culture, at least there's mixtures of that, but th there are some things that are different. And there is a sense, though, that you could meet anybody from anywhere. And, and that was very true in the pubs I'd been hanging out in Limerick, that I could be having the same conversations with a politician and a solicitor and a street sweeper and an art college student. And we'd have all been just talking to each other. And I think the thing that surprised me about the kids in America in the colleges is that they were quite samey, <laughs> quite generically the same. It wasn't until I started meeting the cleaner who came to the au pair family to clean the house. And then she brought me off to visit with her family and where they lived. And their America was a different America. And they didn't have the same ease of entitlement to education. And then I started to learn about how expensive it was for many of the colleges in America, and I thought that I was struggling, but I realized how it would have been a complete barrier to go to college in America for me um, because of the kinds of fees that young people were paying. Even if they were in state colleges, it was still very difficult, very expensive. And so also the level of work that Americans were doing and the lack of leisure time for adults. People were working really long hours and 
the family that I was working for took very few holidays and had very few time off. Even in the summer when the school was out, the, the mum was doing lots of different things. I, we did go to Florida. They took me to Florida and I burned to a crisp on a beach because I didn't understand that kind of heat. I, I thought I was in somewhere like Spain or France. I didn't understand what Florida was in terms of it being more like Africa, where I'd also burned and not understood the heat. It's a slow learner. And then something happened halfway through the year. I was having to go to classes because in order to be on this visa, it was a sort of hybrid au pair slash student visa. And so in order, it was meant to be a, a visa for cultural reasons. And so in order to fulfill that, we had to pick a class in a college and go to some kind of class. Well, I didn't want to be doing anything challenging or difficult during what I see, saw as my year off art college. So I found a local adult drama class and I did that for a semester in the first part of the year. And then in the winter, we didn't have to take a class and I, I got to go learn some skiing and was skiing with the kids and the family and with being taught by the Norwegian au pairs. And then in the second half of the year, I, I decided I would just take the drama class again because it had been so much fun the first time. And in the second drama class, spoiler alert, I met the man who would become my future husband. So we started dating. We continued for the rest of the six months of my being in America. And we got to take a lot of trips together and we got to do different things together. He was working in a really unique school that I think was to influence him greatly in terms of his views on education. I had already been influenced, I think, by the Steiner education that I'd been exposed to through Camp Hill, but I think I was also influenced by this school idea because it was a school called Open Fields. It was founded by a woman called Jean All, and it was a, in a building that was a house, it was a one-house school, and she had created a school for kids that were not being served by the mainstream education that no matter what supports or help they got, they weren't doing well in mainstream education. And so she wanted to make another way, an alternative school. And so she created this school that had really no fixed curriculum. It had different teachers and Mike, my husband-to-be, was a science teacher. But how Mike was teaching science was he had a big book of experiments and science learning. And he would spin through the book and the kids would stick their finger on a page and they would see something like how to grow fruit flies and learn about genetics. And then they'd do that or they'd see something about chemistry and and small science experiments you could do with chemistry. And I think one of the things Mike was doing with them was stop animation photography, where they were making these little clay animations. 
And so I started to volunteer in the school to do other art stuff with the kids. And I made some big worlds with them. We made large papier-mâché world and populated it with their own creations and creatures and houses and homes and evolved into a kind of play-based space where they played with the characters they made. And I remember one little girl who seemed to be playing out something, and this was a bit of a foreshadowing as well, spoiler alert, of my later uh, interest in understanding in play therapy and art therapy, because she had made these characters, and she they were called Shelby and KB, and she would create in her play them going in a voice from loving to fighting, so they'd be going, Shelby, KB, Shelby, Shelby, KB, Shelby, KB, Shelby, KB, Shelby, KB, Shelby, KB, all the time in her games, and that sort of intrigued me at the time. And so Mike and I stayed together throughout that year. We we got to visit other parts of the States. We traveled around Canada on camping trips. And I got to meet his friends as well, and eventually his family in New York. And then that year was over, and I came back to Ireland and had paid off my debts and saved up some money and took back up my deferred place in. Limerick and now was no longer with the same year that I started with. So my friends were all in the year ahead of me and I was now with a new group. And I definitely hung out more with the friends I had already had. And we also in that year got to take a trip, another trip that was to influence me as well, which was to go to Russia which was incredible. It was something that the college had done for a couple of years. And there were some other students who'd gone before, a couple of people that I knew who, because of the Russian trip, I got to know much better. We got to go to Russia and ostensibly to visit art galleries. But because one of these these girls had been to Russia before, she had made friends with some guys she'd met in Russia. And we're going to Russia at the time of the beginning of perestroika. So before that, we'd all known of Russia. In my last year in secondary school, I had known of Russia during the Afghanistani war. We had been terrified. We thought that was going to bring about nuclear Armageddon. And so Russia had invaded Afghanistan, and we saw the Soviet Union in this very particular way. But then by the time I was a couple of years into art college, Gorbachev had arrived on the scene and there was this opening up of glasnost and perestroika. And so we went to Russia then, but there was still lots of the old Soviet era rules. So we had to stay in a special in-tourist hotel, one that was approved only for foreigners to stay in. We did some basic language skills lessons before we went. And we could say a few words, but very few, how to ask what something cost and that sort of thing. And we went there in winter. We had to bring very long coats. We were told it would be really cold and that as Irish young people, we wouldn't have a clue. We'd have to stay safe and have hats and gloves and proper gloves and long coats. And we'd have to have a 
little hook on our coat so that when we went into the art galleries, we'd be able to hand it to a babushka, a little old person who kept the coat racks, and you handed it to them, and they gave you a number, and you hung it up. So it was going to Russia at a very interesting time, and we did get to go and be exposed to massive art galleries in both Moscow and what was then called Leningrad had freedom to do some stuff ourselves and we we also were herded into restaurants into different places and some of my memories of that trip are blurred and I'm unsure where certain things happened I through these connections I think one of the tutors that accompanied us had some kind of connection and we ended up just a few of us being invited to this very plush old apartment and sitting with, I think, a professor having a meal and drinking bison vodka with bison grass in it or something and not really understanding lots of what was going on in the conversation, but feeling like I was in a completely unique environment. And then also with my friend who had made friends there before, people we met up with, and we went to their apartment which was a tiny Soviet bloc era apartment with that they and their family lived in and that we all squeezed into a tiny bedroom like teenagers do to hang out. But this was just for a very cramped accommodation for the family. And then we invited these young men back to our hotel to hang out, imagining that was totally possible and doable. But because of Soviet era, things still being around, they had to first be vetted. And we discovered then that there was a kind of KGB office in a bedroom on one of the floors of the hotel. And they had to go in and get interviewed before they were allowed to visit with us and to be spoken to and to talk to them about what they were allowed to talk to us about. And it was really strange. And Whenever we were sitting waiting outside this bedroom door, and at one point, the door as the door opened between them talking amongst themselves and then inviting the next lad in, we could see that there was security cameras and an array of things that they were able to see in the hotel. And I, we didn't, we we were completely freaked out. We didn't know what they could see and what they were watching in terms of our bedrooms because we'd been enjoying hanging out in the lobby parts of the hall where each of our bedrooms were in this hotel because there was a samovar there and this babushka little lady who would keep this samovar hot and we could go there and make hot tea which was good because it was you'd come in out of very cold temperatures and you'd go and sit here and and she'd give out if you took your glasses away to your bedroom and I got in trouble because It was too hot in my room sometimes at night because they blasted heating through the hotel. And so I'd opened the window, but what I didn't realize was that it wasn't meant to be opened in the window and it had seals in it. So I couldn't get it shut properly. And the little babushka came in and gave out to me. Not that I could understand her Russian, but that was something that happened a lot with babushkas would, would be scolding, scolding, scolding whether or not you understood them. She kind of got it fixed for me. We also met a babushka like that on the train, on the red eye, between Moscow and Leningrad. 
where we also had a woman with samovars and we kept her glasses in our carriages because we were drinking vodka out of them and she came eventually and got them back off us at wee hours of the morning. That train itself as a, as a trip was incredible. It was really like something out of the Dr. Zhivago movie where we pulled in in snow-covered stations and something we didn't couldn't see if people were getting on or off or because it was it was quite dark but you could see the station and the then slowly as the sun came up we saw all these datches these kind of country little log houses and that people had for their food and and so on um in that they grew in and and stayed in and so it was a whole passing through of the russian countryside so this was an experience that was to make me think a lot about another political worldview because the young men that we hung out with and spoke to talked to us about what the West was like and what freedom was and what their experience of freedom and what they wanted for freedom, but also what they had that was guaranteed to them that was really different than what was guaranteed to us because they under the Soviets were guaranteed work and they could, there was, whereas we were in recession times in 1980 Ireland where the unemployment figures for young people were high and everyone, as I was, was still considering migration to places for economic reasons and for other freedoms because of the still influence of the morality from the churches in Ireland and the position of our elders and how they thought about what we should and shouldn't be doing. And we were definitely having a kind of 1980s Ireland was, was a, I suppose, a later blooming of what happened in the 1960s in, in America and other parts of the world, where there, although the, some of that had reached Ireland, the control of both state and church had meant that there wasn't the same expression and freedoms of different sexualities and genders and 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 all of this so that that hadn't happened yet i got to go there but mike had also been there uh when he was an undergraduate he had been able to take a 3 month cultural program in what was leningrad now st petersburg so another trip that I got to take before I finished up in college, which was I think towards the end of my third year in college, was a trip to Israel that my parents included me on. They had been able to do this through a church group that were going to go to Israel, but I was able somehow to tag on to that trip or they were able to bring me along on it. Um, but I was not, I didn't have to go along to everything that they went to, I did go, if they were taking a tour of a architecture, archaeological site or something, I got to go with them, but I could also go off on my own. And because of my connection to Mike, he had his mother's cousins lived in Israel at one point, and one, his mother's cousin had died, but her children had moved to, the, one of the children had moved to the States, but the other two children and their dad still lived in 
Israel, so I had this other connection. I was able to meet up with him. And similar to when I was in Russia, actually, one of the things I didn't mention about Russia was that my new connection to the Jewish family and to Mike, who was Jewish also, um, had made me interested in things about this origin of Judaism, because I'd grown up in this Protestant religion, and I had found my reading of the Old Testament and stuff in primary school, but particularly in Sunday school and later, had kind of given me this an interest into things about Judaism was like this older origin story of the religions I grew up practicing and exploring. So it was fascinating for me to go further back into what was the history of, of my own religion, essentially. And through encountering Jewish family and Mike and going to Jewish services and temple and synagogue. So when I was in Russia, I actually sought out and visited the Jewish quarter. And a man assumed if I was looking for the synagogue, that I was looking for these places and I, we didn't have a common language really. I was translation book. But this man who, who showed me where synagogue was assumed that I must be Jewish because why else in Russia would I have sought that out? And he tried to invite me back to his family for Sabbath. I didn't have time to go because I had to be back to the hotel to get ready to leave the next that night. But in Israel also, I was getting to see something of what Mike had also spent time in Israel. So we were we were apart by then, and we were having this long distance relationship through letters and phone calls that happened through the old AB phone calls in pubs where Mike could ring and we could reverse the charges to the phone because somehow the exchange in Ireland didn't know it was a payphone. It seemed like it was in somebody's house. And this was done by young people all over the place, lots of people and old people too, to talk to their young people who'd emigrated to Australia and other places. So you would set a time in a letter to say, call me on Sunday the 10th of whatever, at eight o'clock on this number. And then Mike would, you know, the took like two to three weeks for the letters to get to each other. So you'd set that time well in advance. And then you'd go to the pub. And then when the phone rang at that time, you'd turn to the small pub and say, everybody quiet for a minute. The whole pub would go quiet because everyone knew what you were doing because lots of people did this. And you'd answer the phone and the operator in America would say, do you accept the charges for a long distance call from Michael? And I would say yes. And then they'd say, okay, and connect us. And then you'd turn to the pub and say, it's okay now. And everyone would talk again. And you could then basically get free phone calls to America. And that went on, I think, all over Ireland. I remember one time a phone box on a street near where we lived was broken and was not accepting coins, but was allowing people to make whatever call they wanted. And there was a queue down the road of people taking time throughout until they came and repaired it. A couple of days later, somebody must have figured it out eventually, there was a queue of people ringing all of their family that was elsewhere in the world for free. This was very expensive in those times to make calls. These trips that I made were new experiences of other cultures and 
Certainly Israel was a very different culture, both the Israeli culture and the Arab culture that I got to experience and people that I got to meet and talk to. And this ancient, ancient landscape and ancient history that we'd studied for years about Romans and all the different remains of seeing bits of things that were in the Bible and words that were very evocative to us throughout those religions. And I got to visit all of that. But uh, one of the things that I wove through that was in some way a parallel process of visiting places Mike had visited and influenced him. I already knew more about Europe and he had also visited Europe, but I didn't know those. So I had that trip to Russia and to Israel. And that was also building on the past experiences of other trips to Africa to and like I say to Europe. So one of the funny things that happened about the Israel trip was that right before it, we had been in dispute with the college who was, I think they were putting up fees and they were not making any improvements to anything. And lots of people like my friends who were on the dole and myself, although I was working and doing okay at paying final year in college when I'd come back, my father, my sister had finished by then in her college. And my dad had said, look, I can help you out a bit financially now if you want. And so I was I was having an easier time of it financially, but many of my friends were having a worse time. And so we were leading protests and I ended up somehow taking a leadership role at one point negotiating with the college about trying to get some improvements and different things and and getting involved with local politicians and all this. And I remember addressing a student body of a couple of hundred students in in a venue somewhere like a hotel or something. In the negotiations, we had said we would not strike. But then I remember really, really unique feeling that I'd never experienced before of the power of a crowd and the kind of almost moment of leading a crowd and the slight hysteria in a crowd. And it was a little frightening to me to contemplate afterwards. But I changed my mind from what I had said earlier. And the panel on the stage was some of the tutors and head of departments and politicians. And we and I to them, I'd been saying as a negotiator, well, if you give us our demands, we won't strike anymore. And But they were intransient about certain things and there was this huge power in the crowd. And so I remember taking the mic and speaking to the crowd and saying, we're going to strike, aren't we? And everybody roaring in agreement. And so we not only stro- were on strike, but we occupied the art college, which is a long precursor um, to the Occupy movement that happened many years later, but was a type of a direct action campaigning thing that, that I'd seen and experienced in other things. And so we we took over the art college and locked ourselves in, said we weren't coming out. But the funny part of that was that although I had been one of the strike leaders and negotiators, there were many others and I wasn't a particular leader at all. Um, I had also arranged to go on this trip to Israel. So partway through the the strike, I snuck out the back of the 
building and instead of living in the sort of squat conditions in the building, I went off on a holiday <laughs> to Israel with my parents. And then whenever the time I'd come back, the strike was over. So I just want to mention one or two other threads of things that were important before I leave art college entirely and those years in Limerick, because they came really together in my final year in art college. And that was a growing social conscience and a growing environmental conscience. And the environmental conscience had been very much something that had come and been influenced by my relationship with Mike. And we were still seeing each other throughout this two years long distance. And I was going back to the States on visits. I went back for a summer and got a job in a therapeutic summer camp, an arts and nature-based uh, camp out in a big, big kind of state park that took kids from disadvantaged areas, very disadvantaged areas of Boston, bust them out, and they got this summer um, project for weeks. And I worked the whole summer uh, there, except from at the very, very beginning. I think I'd got a different job that I couldn't stick because it was so different from my experience of disability care. It was a group home um, where people with disabilities were living and getting a job, but the job was dictated by the state. So there was, remember one man was stuffing the cotton wool in the top of the pharmaceutical bottles all day, every day. And then this group home, we were supposed to help, but we we're also behaviorally managing people with disabilities doing horrible, undignified, boring work and coming home and being agitated and problematic. And if they were too problematic, they adjusted medication or they even sent them to a different group home that was a lockup, essentially, for a couple of weeks till they calmed them down. It was like a jail nearly. And I just didn't like any of it. I remember walking with this man in the evenings who was considered a behavioral problem and he noticing all of the nature around the little city streets that we were on and the squirrels and he was completely calm, but was considered this big behavioral management problem. So I, I didn't stick that job, but I started then working in this therapeutic camp and loving it and learning a lot from the people who ran that camp was much more uh, empowering and it did a lot of positive reinforcement work with the kids and I ended up with this amazing group of wild little boys and we were supposed to give them kind of points throughout the day as they did their different activities based on rewards for good management and managing themselves well and not yelling at other kids and punching other kids and swearing and different things like this. And then they could choose what they would get as their activity, the last activity they'd like to do, a free one at the end of the day. And I discovered a a kind of magic that meant that I could manage some of these really acting out kids, which was just by luck. On I think day two or three, kids who'd been in the camp before that were in my group asked, could they go to the bullfrog pond? And I said, yeah, we can go to the bullfrog pond. And they showed me where it was. And I think they thought that I was going to be a squeamish girl. And they had probably tried this trick on other camp counselors over the years, the 
kids who'd been for a few years in a row. And so they took me to the pond. And then when we were uh, sitting there going to show me, and all of a sudden uh, they had whipped out of the pond a big bullfrog, which they caught and kind of held in my face. And it was huge. It was like the length of my forearm when its legs were dangling down and big, big belly. And I thought it was incredible. And instead of screaming, I was like, oh, my God, can I hold it? And then we, you know, so after that, they love to go and like pick up and and I made sure that they put them back in gently and, and all of that. But they love to go to that bullfrog pond. So it was like a, a magic behavioral reward that I managed to do really well with some of the kids that the other camp counselors, some of them weren't doing well with some of the boys in particular and, and they because some of them could be really violent. So they kept transferring some kids into my group and the, the people in charge of the camp would say, what is your secret, Susie? How are you getting them to do so well through their activities every day? <laughs> well, it's all about the bullfrogs because I just tell them that if they do well through the other activities, our last activity will be back at the bullfrog pond. It was an amazing summer that I spent living with Mike in an apartment in Boston and working with these kids. We managed to have this long distance relationship and my love for nature and my exposure to that was channeling really in my thinking into something more around conservation of nature. And I really was interested in conservation efforts. But Mike had a more environmentalist worldview that I hadn't really encountered exactly before talking to him. And he had read Rachel Carson's Silent Spring as a younger guy and it had woken him up to the possibilities of destruction and damage and pollution and where that all might lead in the 1970s when he was a teenager. So we were having conversations a lot about social and environmental issues in our very early 20s. And so I was leaning most towards the social issues, but I had joined Greenpeace as it was in Ireland at the time. I was informing myself about the kinds of environmental damage and the kinds of activism that Greenpeace was doing. And if there was something, direct action that I could be part of, I would try to be part of it. But what I also encountered was this time I had had away in America really gave me a different understanding of what I and now knew about empowerment of women and women's issues in Ireland and oppression, essentially. I had one particular friend who was someone I'd helped out and, and I used to go out and stay with her a lot and help her because she was an orphan and she was taking care of one of her little sisters who had been living with their older brother who had kind of cared for them all from he was 18 after they lost their second parent and he was guardian. But that had been a really tough situation and he was older now and had married and had, I think, a child of his own. My friend had taken in her little sister. She was in school in Limerick. So this household was the most unstudenty and more household. And I guess after my year of pairing, I think that I was very drawn to helping her out and helping with this sort of extra parenting. 
And she was also living on the poverty line and didn't have a grant or anything for art college. So she worked and she also signed on the dole illegally and hid the fact that she was working and hid the fact that she was at art college. She always used to have to wash her hands, uh, make sure there was no paint on her. This was a loophole that quite a lot of art college students were managing to do where they would sign on and not let on they were in college. That would obviously, in the electronic world of today, that wouldn't be possible. There was a joke about it. People used to say they were state-supported artists because they were drawing the dole. But I used to hang out a lot with her and her family. And later, another of her sisters came and lived with her too and got a job in the area. So I had a kind of different experience in the final two years. I'd begun to really wake up to that. And so I saw an advertisement in the local paper in Limerick for volunteer rape crisis counsellors with training and support from the Limerick Rape Crisis Centre. And that kind of spoke to me because one of my fellow students in art college was beginning to make, slowly but surely, a installation art piece and a kind of performance art that was, although we didn't realize it yet, it was a slow public exposure of her trauma, of her life, what had happened to her through abuse. And I, I don't think that... I, until I went and joined the Limerick Rape Crisis Centre as a volunteer and did that course and began to be a very, very inexperienced young woman giving counselling to people who'd experienced rape and sexual abuse. I hadn't, it was sort of in the periphery of my knowledge that that went on, but somehow I did know it existed because when I was in Northern Ireland, a child, one of the girls in my class had been raped. And so I was aware and I was also aware through a more growing, healthy relationship with Mike. I was also aware of the past relationships I'd had and the different experiences I'd had not always being I understood or that I could articulate. So I went along and I did this six evening kind of Rogerian counseling. We were basically taught, listen without any judgment, make sure any response or questions that you ask show no judgment, just total acceptance of a person's story in their narrative and listen to that narrative. And then the only kind of counseling technique that we were taught was reflect back what you hear using non-judgmental language, paying most attention to emotions. So reflect it back shows that they know you've heard them. And so that was it. It was a kind of active listening that we were taught. And then there was no professional counselors. There was no, there was nobody who had a qualification in counseling. There was no psychotherapists. This was a network of volunteer-run rape crisis centres in Ireland, and the only one at the time that had any paid staff was the Dublin Rape Crisis Centre. And there was Clonmel, I think, Rape Crisis Centre, there was Belfast Rape Crisis Centre, and it was part of 
the women's movement. So I then got exposed to a whole lot of feminist thinking, empowerment of women thinking, and the conversations that I had with especially the more of the people volunteering were older than me and some of the ones who'd started the center were the oldest, probably in their 50s. And we had these ongoing kind of peer-to-peer supervision sessions where we could bring up things and, and get advice from each other about what we were doing with our clients. And so this is something I did throughout my last year in art college. Yeah, I listened and got to hear stories of women and things that happened and and really how incredible that is to look back at from my vantage point now because one of the most common threads of stories were people who had been either raped or sexually abused. Not only had the ones who'd been abused as children not been believed and all of the stuff that I heard there about the priests that got moved from parish to parish the the children that weren't believed, and then those that were current rapes in 1980s who were still not being believed and who Gardi didn't believe, who judges didn't believe, and those that managed to even get as far as court were routinely accused of, of being mentally ill, of hysteria, and psychiatrists that they might have seen if they had mental health issues before they came to us for counselling again, not believed and and medicated and told they were hysterical. And and that was really common. Um, that's hard to, to really comprehend just how pervasive it was across all of the men in the culture in power positions. Um, and then many of the women who were the mothers of these girls and women that I was listening to their stories that they didn't speak up either. And whether they were believed or not, they certainly didn't tell their daughters or sisters or, you know, that they did believe them. Um, so that was that was really formative um, for me, both that and the work with the children in America, who were also kids sometimes in care because of breakdown and abuse in their households too. I believe there's probably hundreds more stories of both crazy times and activism times and experimental times that that characterize my years through art college and through travel. But one of the things that I just bridge to what I'll talk about next is when I return um, to America to study art therapy. And that's really because I had begun to think about a career or what I would do. And I'd begun to realize that I didn't want to be an artist. I didn't want to make art that was commercial in any way that meant that I'd have to play what I saw at the time as increasingly a a game of the art scene and something that was very hard for women to succeed within in particular, but that was hard for anyone to succeed within to be viable. And I had within me quite a lot of this, like either from how I was brought up to think about your livelihood, to think about how were you going to survive in the world. There was no cushion being offered, no sense that there was an alternative and a pride as well, perhaps a arrogance that I wouldn't, I wouldn't sign on the dole. I wouldn't take security from the state. I would find a way to 
to make it on my own. And I had considered doing the follow-up H-dip to be an art teacher. But then when I'd been in the summer camp in Boston, one of the people that I'd met was studying expressive therapies in Leslie College in Boston. And they ran an art space for the kids. And something was beginning to click this work as a volunteer counselor, time in the school in Thetford with Mike, with the kids making art that was expressive and play therapy-like. I remember realizing and thinking of one client in particular who would come to sessions in the Rape Crisis Center but couldn't speak because it was clearly too traumatic to try to tell a story and put it in words. And she and I exchanged notes. I would pass her a comment or a note or a reflection while she would write her story. And then my friend, whose final exhibition in our final year when we all put our sculptures or paintings together, she made the final version of this installation. And what she'd done was create a completely gray and black room. She'd made blackboards of the walls and she'd recreated her childhood bedroom room, but all in grays and blacks. And all over the walls, she had written the story of her abuse. And I, and because I was working at the Rape Crisis Center, she talked to me a lot about that. And there was this misfit with that, with art college. She was being still critiqued by the staff on her art. And yet here was she sharing her vulnerable trauma. And there was just something there for me kindling about art as art, art as craft, art as expression, and art as therapy. I decided that I would apply to do a master's in art therapy in America to continue my relationship with Mike, but to have a reason to return to America rather than just to return because of a boyfriend only. And so in that last part of my art college year, I was synthesizing a lot of my creative and own my own experiences of difficult, challenging times as a young person, as you often are going through when you leave home into something that would become a direction for me. And so I shall leave it there at the end of art college when I'm probably about age 22 or 23, I think, 22.